Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the filmmaker's collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. On this episode, I welcome back filmmaker Paula Absol to discuss her new documentary, Resistance, They Fought Back. Paula's film, which will be screened at the Boston Jewish Film Festival on November 2nd, is a vivid refutation of the inaccurate idea that during the Holocaust, the Jews of Europe meekly submitted to Nazi atrocities, like so-called lambs to the slaughter. Told by survivors, their children, and scholars from the U.S., Israel, and Europe, the film reveals how the Jews fought back, uncovering evidence of nonviolent methods which served as crucial tools of resistance and evolved into Jewish armed revolts in ghettos, forests, and death camps. Today, almost 80 years after the Holocaust, this story remains largely unknown to the general public. Without it, Paula believes, our understanding of this genocide, which wiped out two-thirds of European Jewry, remains incomplete, giving rise to renewed anti-Semitism, hatred, and denial of the Holocaust itself. Here's the film's trailer. You have a uh, contradiction between what people thought and what, what actually happened. People have this myth stuck in their heads that the Jews went to their deaths like sheep to the slaughter. But this is where the real story begins. Can't say that the Jews were silent, that's absolute nonsense. The Jews were armed, they were ready to resist. It's hard to excavate, but we are sure there are weapons still in these places. The prisoners were able to collect a number of knives and very primitive grenades. Resistance. You're not going to break my humanity. There's no way you can put a value on that kind of resistance. That stays forever. So this is a story that gives you power to live. Jews did not go as sheep to the slaughter. They fought back. Paula Absol spent 35 years as the senior executive producer of the PBS Nova Science Series, responsible for more than 650 documentaries about the sciences, technology, engineering, mathematics, and medicine, and which won every major broadcasting award, including the Emmy, the Peabody, and an Academy Award nomination for special effects. She's been recognized with numerous individual awards, including the 2018 Lifetime Achievement Emmy of the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences. She is currently CEO of Leading Edge Productions. 
Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum, from providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs. Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. Now on to my conversation with Paula Absel. Hello, Paula Absol. Welcome to Making Media Now. Thank you very much, Michael. It's great. We are here to talk about your film, your new film that you directed called Resistance. They Fought Back, which is a 96-minute feature documentary on Jewish resistance during the Holocaust. Your film will be part of the Boston Jewish Film Festival, which will be starting on November the 2nd. And I'm curious... How did these stories, Jews during the Holocaust, essentially operating against what misinformed historical record uh, often presented, which was sort of going like lambs to the slaughter? How did these how did these stories of resistance find you? So, first of all, you know, we've all heard of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, but Paradoxically, most people, people know that it was the largest Jewish uprising, but they also believe that it was the only Jewish uprising. That's Mm -hmm. completely wrong. There were uprisings or there was resistance in each of the 1200 ghettos. Jews fought in the forests and even in the death camps. There were seven uprisings or rebellions in death camps and six of them were led by Jews. So while the scholarly record shows that there is a lot of scholarship about Jewish resistance, somehow it has not broken through to popular culture. And all of the popular culture, or most of the popular culture that you see about the Holocaust shows Jews as victims, shows Jews as people who have to be rescued by Gentiles. And of course, Jews were rescued by Gentiles Mm -hmm. in in some cases, but Jews also rescued other Jews, and that was far more prevalent. And somehow, for some reason, it has not broken through to ordinary people, even though it is part of the scholarly record. So when I was executive producer of NOVA, which I was for 35 years, in 2016, I was actually on location in Vilnius, Lithuania. That's the capital of Lithuania. It was like a place I'm embarrassed to say I'd never heard of. And it was in a place called Punari, which was an extermination site used by the Germans and their Lithuanian collaborators. And we were making a film. I was making a film with Lone Wolf Media for Nova, and we were with a group of geoarchaeologists when they discovered, under the leadership of Professor Richard Freund, when they discovered an escape tunnel that was used by 80 Jews who were brought in by the Germans to exhume and burn the bodies of 70,000 Jews that they had murdered because they were afraid that they were going to be held to account for their Mm -hmm. work. And the Jews, they were known as the Burning Brigade. They knew that they would be the next victims. So as soon as their horrible work was done, so they decided to dig a tunnel. So 80 of them dug a tunnel. And on the last night of Passover, which the rabbi who was among them told them would be the darkest night of the month, 
they used the tunnel to try to escape. Most of them were shot, but 12 of them made it and went out to the forest where the Jewish partisans were waiting. We made a film about that. It was called Holocaust Escape Tunnel, one of the most popular novas of that season. And I started to think, I didn't know about this tunnel or any other tunnel Mm -hmm. or really any other instance of Jewish resistance except for the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Why not? And I started to really think about that and do some research. So when I retired from NOVA in 2019, the idea really just kind of started to grow on me and really started to grab hold of me. And one time, Professor Richard Freund, whom uh, I had made, I think, worked on three films with him. He was at my house because he had a medical appointment in uh, Boston. He's uh, actually from, he was from Virginia. Sadly, he's passed away now. And I asked him, Richard, why haven't we heard of these episodes of resistance like the tunnel? And he joked and he said, because you haven't made the film yet, Hmm. but it's time (laughs) for you to make it. And that really started me thinking. And uh, my husband really got on my case, too. And, um, you know, I had left NOVA, which I had a wonderful career. And I think I was looking. I was conscious that I was looking for something. Mm-hmm. I was uh, thinking that, you know, I was going to play Canasta and Mahjong, which I really <laughs> liked to play and um, become the Jewish housewife I was always intended to be. But somehow the idea just grabbed hold of me and wouldn't let me go. So I set up a company called Leading Edge Productions as a 501c3 nonprofit charity. And um, four years later, the film is complete. Resistance, they fought back. Yeah, and, you, and your film references these these acts of resistance, and, and there's a variety of them. Uh, you know, you, you, you speak of at least 60 armed rebellions in ghettos, 25 uh, uh, instances of, of this resistance in concentration camps, and then, of course, the, the Jews fighting by the thousands within partisan units uh, during World War II. But mm-hmm. I want to look at those individually for a bit, if we could. Uh, you were referencing the digging of a tunnel, and... Just give our listeners just a sense of the intricacy uh, and the subterfuge that had to be involved in the digging of this tunnel. Now, obviously, this is a digging of uh, a digging that has to take place uh, outside of the eyes of uh, Nazi guards, etc. So give us a little bit of the flavor of, uh, you know, what was at play and what constituted digging. So I do want to say that the tunnel in Panari, which we explained and described in Holocaust Escape Tunnel in Inova, um, they actually had a structural engineer in that group. So, I mean, they dug the tunnel by candlelight. Yeah. They dug the tunnel with spoons. And it said, um, although I'm, I'm not completely sure that this is accurate, but it said that they were shackled. So, um, you know, under the worst conditions. But our film, Resistance They Fought Back, actually has the story of another tunnel in Belarus in a town called Novogrudak, which the Germans had um, 
They killed most or many of the Jews, and there was a camp, like a a, a labor camp, mm-hmm. and um, and those Jews also dug a tunnel at night, a, a long tunnel, and they used it to get out of the Novogrudek labor camp. Mm-hmm. They went out into the forest, and they were the. As they emerged from the tunnel, it was raining, it was cold, and the Germans were shooting, and many of them died, but I believe 170 of them survived in the forest, and of course they had no idea where they were. It was pitch black. It was night, cold, rainy, and they were found by a group called the Bielski Brigade, which was five brothers who, uh, who their parents had been killed, and they set themselves up to rescue Jews in the forest. They were Jewish themselves, and they had 1,200 people, and they survived in the forest for more than a year until the liberation. They saved the lives of 1,200 people. Now, many of the partisans, their job and their mission was to kill Nazis. But the Bielski Brigade, they had a whole different philosophy. They said, we're all Jews. We have to survive. That's our resistance. Hmm. And all of those 1,200 people and the Bielski brothers did survive. And it's just an amazing story. They had bakeries in the forest. They had a little hospital in the forest. They had leatherworks in the forest. They protect, and they took everyone, men, women, children, single women, babies. A lot of the partisan brigades, especially the non-Jewish partisan brigades, wouldn't take you unless you had a weapon. They Mm. didn't want women. They wouldn't allow women to fight. But the Bielski Brigade was different. They were really unique. And 1,200 souls were saved. What did you learn about the the means of of communication, the the means of organization that the uh, individuals who were involved in these uh, different acts of resistance used to, you know, uh, essentially get others to join them and to infuse at least the spirit, if not action, around non-resistance? Well, I think that um, you have to understand at the beginning at the beginning, early days in the war, mm-hmm. people didn't, Jews did not understand that the end point of the Germans and the Nazis was the total extermination of the, the Jews. The final solution. They, they, they never heard of the words final solution. And honestly, Michael, who could imagine this, that they want to exterminate a whole people? I mean, that level of genocide is just not in in people's minds. Mm-hmm. And they believe, for example, in the Warsaw Ghetto and in many of the ghettos, let's just figure out a way to survive. Let's protect each other. Let's take care of each other. Let's care for the poor. Let's care for the needy. Let's care for orphans. And we Jews have been through bad times before and will survive. So that was at the beginning. And the young resistance fighters, what they did was, and I think what distinguishes um, our film, Resistance They Fought Back, is that we put a real emphasis on nonviolent resistance, Mm -hmm. which has a Hebrew word, 
Amida, which means standing up against, standing up against the German system. And so in these ghettos, they had illegal schools, for example, and they had schools. Um, young people who were not trained as teachers taught the children so that they would survive and be Jews after the war. Mm-hmm. And they had a very high level of cultural activity, plays, and orchestra. Many ghettos had orchestras um, and and book readings. In many, the library, um, the lending library, lent out more books during the early days of the Holocaust than at any other t- time. The Germans didn't want people to read, but they said, I'm a human being. I'm going to read, and yeah. you're not going to stop me. So this Amidah and also spiritual observance, which the Germans didn't allow either. So this Amidah, or standing up against the Germans in a nonviolent way, was a very important part of the early resistance. Then, as they started to realize, and as they started deportations to death camps, then the Jews in the ghetto started to realize what the Germans' main goal was, the extermination mm-hmm. of the Jewish people. And the young people started to realize that, and that's when they went to collect guns, and that's when they started to plan uprisings. Now, the uprisings didn't work, of course. I mean, actually, in the Warsaw Ghetto, the young people held out. It was not just the young people. People, 55 to 60,000 Jews hid in their bunkers under the ghetto. The Germans couldn't find them. They couldn't find a single Jew. Can you imagine that? Yeah. Until they decided to fight the ghetto with the weapon of fire and they burned down the ghetto. And of course, that's when everybody had to emerge. But they still held out longer than the National Army of Poland, of France, of the Netherlands, and of other places. It it, it was really unbelievable. And that happened in other ghettos as well, where resistance started almost as soon as the Germans forced the people into, into ghettos. So there's an evolution, and that's what our film shows, an evolution from nonviolent resistance, Amidah, standing, any activities that stand up against the Germans, keeping a record of German war crimes so that people would know after the war. The one, um, the, one the words that we came across time and time again in the testimonies and a lot of our research involved going into the testimonies of people who were resistance fighters. We, we actually have five survivors in our actual survivors in our film. Yep. But, um, but of those who weren't, who didn't survive, and of course, one of the reasons why we don't know about a lot of instances of resistance is because no one survived. Yeah. So in that, we found the words time and time again, so the world will know. They didn't have hope for their own survival. Yeah. They wanted the world to know. So you mentioned the Warsaw Ghetto uprising, and I think you mentioned, as most people know, but here we are almost 80 years since then, 
And I do think that a large portion of, you know, the population does know about the Warsaw Ghetto uprising. But I think a large population, generationally speaking, doesn't. They may have a vague notion of that. They, But I also think when they hear the word ghetto, uh, there might be an association to economically depressed areas, you know, a, uh, a persistent underclass. These ghettos were purposefully created. Could you just talk a little bit about when when we use the phrase ghetto in in uh, reference to um, where the Jewish populations of various areas were uh, hoarded into um, what the goal was of the Germans at the time of the Nazis at the time and and what existence was like within these ghettos. So there were twelve hundred ghettos in in uh, Eastern Europe that were set up by the Germans with the often with the collaboration of the home country. And they were like prisons, essentially. And in Warsaw, for example, they crowded people. Often many families would have to share one room. They took all the Jews had to leave their homes and Jews were, you know, many of them were very prosperous and lived in, you know, very nice apartments. All of a sudden, they're crowded into this small area, which is the the Warsaw Ghetto. And this was the same with many other ghettos. Um, The Germans rationed food. I believe it was 184 calories a day per person. Those are starvation. You you Mm -hmm. can't survive on that. And then People would be shot and killed for the slightest infraction. So there were many orphans, many children whose parents had been killed. And eventually, they started to take people in deportations on the trains to first the concentration camp Treblinka and other concentration camps. So they lived with the fear of being deported to the concentration camps every day. But the conditions were terrible. Now, the Germans were, would, um, they made propaganda films. They were constantly filming in the ghettos because they wanted to convince people that this was actually how Jews lived, right. that there was disease. And of course, there was a lot of disease. There was typhus. I mean, you have all these people crowded into horrible conditions Um, with starvation. And then, you know, people would sneak out of the ghetto. Young boys would sneak out of the ghetto to get food and sneak back in because the walls were somewhat porous. But if you were caught sneaking out of the ghetto, you were shot. And then if Jews uh, raised a weapon against the Germans, if they killed one German, the Germans, they believed in collective punishment, they would Mm -hmm. kill 2,000. So the conditions were just... Terrible. I mean, the ghettos were essentially prisons with, but in reality, that was probably the best part of the Holocaust was Jews living together in the ghettos because uh, the death camps were much, much worse. And of course, immediate extermination, which is what happened to most Jews when they were on the train to death camps, was. Mm-hmm extermination in the gas chambers who benefited during the reign of the nazis and who benefited post-world war ii do you think from the perpetuation of the myth 
that the Jews, by and large, went like lambs to the slaughter during the Holocaust? The Germans kept very meticulous records about their war against the Jews. We have to understand that the Germans waged two wars. One was the World War, and one was the war against the Jews. And Mm. the war against the Jews was just as important to them. And in fact, it took considerable resources, especially at the end of the war when they started to lose. It took considerable resources to be all these trains to send people to concentration camps, but they still did it. It's it's really in, incomprehensible, but but of course the whole thing is incomprehensible. Anyway, the Germans kept meticulous documentation of their war against the Jews, but they never mentioned resistance. They were allergic to the idea of resistance. They believed that Jews were such an inferior people that they were incapable of resistance. So they never, like, for example, the the rebellions that I told you about, six Mm -hmm. rebellion death camps that that were led by Jews, they never mentioned these. So people thought, well, the Germans who kept such careful records never mentioned this, it must not have happened. And that was really the source of the perpetuation of the sheep to the slaughter myth. Now, the idea of sheep to the slaughter is actually comes from the Bible. And it's a positive. It's about people who sacrifice themselves for the glory of God or for the glory of the Jewish people. So it's actually seen as a positive. But in World War II, it became a pejorative. And now, of course, this idea of Jews as people who won't defend themselves, right. as Jews who were complicit in their own deaths, this is now a very common trope among anti-Semites and white supremacists. I just saw an, an article from the Jerusalem Post about General um, Michael Flynn, mm-hmm. who was... Uh, President Trump's um, national, national security, security advisor for a brief period of time, who said that Jews um, were responsible for the deaths of their children in Auschwitz because there weren't many guards there, which is completely and totally untrue. But this is now, and this is this is Flynn. This is a man who was high in our government, a general. It's unbelievable. And it's very easy to say, well, consider the source. You know, a lot of people say Flynn is an idiot, which I'm sure is true. But it's much more widely believed than we know. So this sheep to the slaughter, despite the scholarship that exists to show that it's not true, it doesn't matter. Many people still believe it is true. And that's really one of my motivations for making this film. I wanted to break through to popular culture so that people understand that, in fact, Jews did fight back and that myth is false and needs to be corrected. Yeah. In addition to being historically inaccurate and morally reprehensible, it's actually entirely illogical because on the one hand, the voices of anti-Semitism are always speaking of this global cabal, these puppet masters that pull the levers of power. And yet, on the other hand, 
statements like Flynn's uh, suggesting that that Jews meekly sacrifice their own during the Holocaust. Well, which is it? Are you know were 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 they meek and mild and and did not uh, brook any dissent, or are there the you know the global puppet masters controlling events? Well, that's very true. Absolutely. And and really, the the central core of each of them is it's just different avenues to feed a persistent hatred. That hatred being anti-Semitism. On the flip side of my of that question, I'm wondering what you have discovered since making this film around the value uh, that Jewish people have found in learning about these many, many instances of resistance? People that I talked to, it, it, at the beginning, when I would say I'm making a film on Jewish resistance, I can't tell you how many times people said to me, what resistance? Mm. Even Jewish people. It, it was really, really depressing. But when I tell them, what my film is about. And when I talk about this evolution of resistance, once the truth of the German intention, the Nazi intention becomes known, they are so happy to know this. It, it brings to them an aspect of, of the history of the Holocaust that, that mystified them just yesterday um, a friend, we were talking about the film, and a friend said to me, I always, and, and this is a man who was an officer in the Air Force, had a career in the Air Force, Jewish guy, and he said, I always wondered why they didn't fight back. I never understood it, and it always troubled me. And I'm so eager to see your film and to hear that you're making a film on this so that we can understand the truth. You know, 80 years later, in terms of what has reached popular culture, what has reached ordinary people, because scholars are one thing. Right. Ordinary people are another thing. Um, in terms of what set the story of the Holocaust is incomplete. Yeah. And it's time to set the time to set past time to set the record straight. Now, I don't want anybody to think that I think my film is going to do that alone, but it's just one contribution Absolutely. to it. Yeah. And I'm sure, hopefully, I really hope that maybe it inspires more and inspires more people to come forward with their stories. And so uh, there's a, I, I have to tell you one thing. I was, we were filming in the uh, Jewish ghetto, the former Jewish ghetto, of Kovno, which is in Kaunas, which is Lithuania's second largest city. And we were with a guide, and again, this is a person who's not Jewish. And she told me about a woman who lives not 10 minutes from my house in Brookline, who is a violinist, a concert violinist, and who teaches uh, music and violin at Boston University, who was what's known as a potato sack child in the Kovno ghetto in Lithuania. The parents in the ghetto were desperate to save their children. So hundreds of them packed their children up, and this woman, um, Dana Mazurkiewicz, her parents packed her up in a potato sack and found a Lithuanian man to take her out and found a family to take her and mm. to save her life. Mm -hmm. And it happened that the 
the mother and father survived. The father was a famous violinist in Lithuania. In fact, he introduced jazz to Lithuania, and he was sent to Dachau. And anyway, the family was eventually reunited, not without trauma, of course. Um, and then she she actually went to had become a violinist because it was a musical family, and uh, she studied in Russia with David Oistrakh, and um, and then emigrated to Canada and the United States. And she lived not far away from me. I didn't know her story. I'm not yeah. sure how much she had told it. So there are a lot of stories. One thing that I would like to say is that one thing that really interested me was how many young women were involved in the resistance. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, it was easy. Because Jewish men are circumcised, it's very easy to know that a man is Jewish. All you have to do is look under his trousers, mm -hmm. and you will know that. So the in the resistance, men really couldn't leave the ghetto. Or they had to be very, very careful. Well, everybody had to be very careful. And women were often sent outside the ghetto to, to live, um, to communicate between ghettos, to bring food and weapons and smuggle people, even babies, from ghetto to ghetto. They were known as couriers. And we tell the story of a couple of them. Bella Hazan, who was in the Grudno ghetto, and Vlad Kamid, um, who was in the Warsaw ghetto. And they did incredibly courageous things. And these are young women, girls who were still teenagers in their early 20s. They hadn't been raised to do this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But they were studious, studied in school. And um, they, the level of courage to do this kind of resistance work was just amazing. And I just found so, I was so inspired by their stories. Yeah. And often they were leaders in in uprisings in, in Sobibor ghetto. Women were often leaders in the uprising. And it was just amazing to me. And mm -hmm. I was very inspired by their stories and continued to be. So you're ushering your film into the world at a time of particular turmoil and violence, which uh, just underscores yet again that the forces of anti-Semitism are all too easily on display in this world. Uh, we're, we're, you know, you and I are speaking just a few weeks after the October 7th terrorist uh, attack uh, by Hamas on Israel and I'm just wondering if the um, importance of your film, if the message of your film feels more pronounced to you at this time in light of these events. I think that the message of the film is always important. But yes, I have to agree with you, Michael. October 7th was the bloodiest day for Jews since the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And that has to tell you something. And I'm just, I'm personally devastated by it. But I don't know what it will take for the world to understand that the idea that you can kill and attack Jews with impunity is wrong, 100% yeah. wrong. Jews did fight back. 
they are fighting back and mm-hmm. they will fight back. Mm-hmm. Full stop. There's really nothing more than I can say. Full stop, indeed. So I'm speaking with Paula Absel. She is the director of a documentary called Resistance. They Fought Back, which will be opening at the Boston Jewish Film Festival. Uh, if you want to find out more about the film, if you want to uh, keep up with the film as it's going to appear at other festivals and eventually in 2024, get out into the world via streaming, etc. You can go to the website. Paula, share with us the film's website, please. Theyfoughtback.com. I'd just like to say one other thing. Sure thing. The October 2nd screening of Resistance They Fought Back was sold out. November 2nd. Yes, it was sold out in four hours. It was. That's wonderful. So the Boston Jewish Film Festival has decided to have a second screening on November 9th at the Brattle Theater in Cambridge at 630. So I'd just like people to know that. Absolutely. And we will be, uh, on behalf of Filmmakers Collaborative, we'll be sharing through social media posts all updates to opportunities for for screening and attending. Again, Paula Absel, thank you for this film and thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. 